Hello, welcome back. How have you been? We've been away for a few months, but now we have returned for more quickie fun. Welcome to Kino Quickies Season 2. But I speak as though you know what I'm talking about when it's entirely possible you have no idea what on earth you've just stumbled across. So let me quickly explain what this is via the medium of some succinct answers to these questions submitted by a gentleman from the 1930s. I say, what is this Kino Quickies podcast? It's a podcast based on live screenings of 1930s quota quickie films plus Q&As with special guests. Quota quickie films, you say? Sounds like a most intriguing proposition. Tell me more. Well, quota quickies were films made very quickly and very cheaply in a specific period of the 1930s in the UK as a result of government legislation which was intended to shore up the UK film industry in the face of the all-powerful Hollywood studios. That sounds inherently fascinating, although I suspect that you don't have time to go into more detail about that at this juncture, so perhaps you could recommend somewhere that a chap could peruse the subject a little further. Yes, of course. You'll find a link to more information about Quota Quickies on the show notes for any episode of the show at kinoquickies.com. Thank you most kindly. We're all looking forward to the invention of the internet here in the 1930s, but tell me... Where do these screenings take place? All of our screenings take place on Sunday afternoons at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, South East London, just a short trot from London Bridge Station. I see. Quota quickies at the Kino. Kino quickies. Very clever. Thanks. And who are the hosts of this delightful Sunday afternoon jamboree? They're hosted by me. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and our resident quota quickie expert is the venerable... Pete? No, the venerable Dr Lawrence Napper, of King's College London, and we have a different expert special guest for each film. Sounds absolutely splendid. I bet it's thirsty work there. Well, luckily the Kino has a pleasant bar with a wide selection of drinks and snacks. Well, count me in, old boy. But how does one go about acquiring tickets? The ticket site is ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies. That's ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies, or you'll find a link to this on the podcast page kinoquickies.com. Well, this all sounds most invigorating. You know, you really ought to get some of my exploits up there on the silver screen. There was this one time I was... Yes, thank you, Mr. 1930s man. Time to get on. So, the film for this first episode of the season is a belter. The Last Journey from 1935. It's a seat-to-the-pants thriller directed by Bernard Vorhaus, starring Hugh Williams and Godfrey Turl. And it's largely set aboard a speeding train being driven by a suicidal madman. At the time of recording this, the screening was a couple of days ago on October the 9th, 2022. And I can confirm, spoiler alert, that our audience very much enjoyed The Last Journey. But enough of this intro stuff. Let us now join that audience as they settle themselves down into their seats to hear my long rambling intro to Kino Quickies Season 2 at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Hello. Welcome back. Season two, film one. Kino Quickies, The Last Journey, which I think you'll like very much. The band is back together. Uh, my name is Dominic Delaghi. I'm the producer person. We've got... L- Lawrence, you're not in your normal place. What's going on? <laughs> Lawrence Napper from King's College London, our, uh, our resident quote quickie expert. Our guest today is Dr. Martin Stollery, who's sitting down there. He wrote uh, a book called British Film Editors. What's that about? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and this is a very edity film. Um, I th- 
as we'll see later. I just want to run through the films for the rest of the season because they're very, very exciting. And also highlight which World Cup matches they're going to clash with because we are clashing with the World Cup this year. I don't know why the World Cup's in the winter this year. Well, I do know why. Backhanders, bungs. No backhanders or bungs took place here. <laughs> Nobody died putting this season together. So two weeks from now, we've got The Impassive Footman from 1932, which is an early Ealing film. It's about the unhappy marriage between a very, very unappealing older man who's a hypochondriac and his much more vivacious uh, younger wife. Sounds familiar, <laughs> darling. Um, and what happens when a dashing young doctor comes on the scene and, uh, and it catches her eye. It's not that dashing or young, actually, but... Uh, Anyway, whatever. And all these shenanigans are watched over by a footman who remains impassive until he isn't impassive. I'll leave that there. Our guest for that one is Mel Byron, who's a comedian and co-host of the Talking Pictures TV podcast, and she's very knowledgeable about all things film. That's on October 23rd, and it clashes with no football because the tournament hasn't started by them. The third film is I Lived With You from 1933, written by and stars Ivan Novello, who was a massive star in his day, and also Ida Lupino, who you might remember from The Ghost Camera. She was about 15. I think it's the same year as The Ghost Camera, this, so she's about 15. Novello plays a Russian prince who pitches up in London with no money. It's not really explained why, and ends up living with Ida Lupino and her family. He's very witty and very funny. One of the funniest things is his accent, because he's, he's actually from South Wales, Ivan Novello, and his Russian accent is more Merthyr than Moscow. <laughs> I've prepared that line. More Landidno than Leningrad. I've got more, but I won't do it anymore. <laughs> and the guest for that is John Snelson, who's an author writing a book about the history of British musicals. And he's done a lot of research into Ivan Novello and into um, Adel Pino and her famous family, because she's from generations of entertainers. And that clashes with no football. Uh, the fourth film is a comedy called A Fire's Been Arranged for 1935. It's a vehicle uh, for the comedy duo uh, Flanagan and Allen. <laughs> Guess who chose this film? Um, <laughs> it also stars Rob Wilton, who's, who you might, not, you might not have heard of, but you recognise him as the guy who does this a lot. And also the Buddy Bradley Rhythm Girls, who are, my, who are amazing. The, the plot of that is they rob a jewellery store and they bury their loot in a field. And then they get arrested and go to prison. And when they come out ten years later, a department store has been built on top of their loot and they have to go through uh, certain comic turns to try and get it back. Also says Alistair Sim. Um, and the guest for that one is Steve Chibnall, who wrote the book called Quota Quickies, upon which all of this is based. And that clashes with the first match of the World Cup, which is Qatar versus Colombia at 4pm. So uh, a death duel there. Uh, the fifth one, penultimate film, is Death on the Set from 1935. Stars Henry Kendall, who you might remember from The Ghost Camera and also from Death at Broadcasting House. He plays two parts in this film. He plays... I, originally, I thought he was an identical twins, but actually, it's just two blokes who look and sound like <laughs> each other. It's really implausible. But um, he has some scenes where he plays against himself, and it's really impressive. It's seamless, actually, even now. And like many films in the season, it was produced by Julius Hagen and made at Twickenham Studios. And our guest for that film is called Richard Farmer. He, he's an academic who's currently doing a study on British film studios, so I'll be grilling him about Twickenham. That one clashes with two matches that have yet to be confirmed because it's after the group stages one at 3 p.m one at 7 p.m not the final not yet 
And the final film of the season, December the 18th, it's our Christmas finale spectacular. It's Scrooge, which is based on a book you've probably heard of. And it's the first ever talky version of Christmas Carol. It's going to be very jolly and festive. The plans for that are top secret, rather like Quasi Quarteng's plans for how he's going to pay for the tax cuts. <laughs> and that joke was for the benefit of our guest for that Q&A, who's Ming Ho. Where is she? Because uh, Ming, um, Ming is a furious tweeter about the government, as well as being a, a, a screenwriter and a playwright. That one clashes with the World Cup final. So, uh, but England won't be in it, so. <laughs> Fine. So that's the season. So this film, I just, I'll do this very, very quickly. Last Journey, I think you're gonna love it, especially if you like film, especially if you like, you love films, especially if you like trains, because it's very, very trainy. Um, he's directed by Bernard Vorhaus, who also did the, the ghost camera. He's, he's one of these guys, like Julius Hagen, who did a lot with limited resources. And this film is packed with inventiveness and it's, it's great. Uh, a contemporary review said it was commendably resourceful, which um, says a lot about what he did with his money. The, uh, our, our venerable guest, Martin Stollery, who's an editing expert, loved a thing or two to say about it. It's very, very edity. The two named stars are, can you see him on that poster? Yeah, Godfrey Turl and Hugh Williams. Hugh Williams we saw in Brief Ecstasy last, last season. We learned a lot about his private life. Only really had his trousers on when he was uh, being filmed. And, um, and Godfrey Turl, you'll know about, um, if you've seen 39 Steps, he's the one with half a finger missing. He's a very, very sinister man, remember him? So I think that's it. So after the film, if you could go to the bar, get yourself a nice drink. My son works behind the bar now. He's sitting over there asking for coffee because he hates making coffee. Um, uh, and then come back and we'll have a, a lovely, um, lovely Q&A. So uh, sit back. Don't sit back too far because you will be on the edge of your seats in this film. Um, and we're going to watch two trailers for Talking Pictures TV. We're supposed to have updated ones, but they haven't arrived. So we're going to show last season's trailers because we love Talking Pictures TV and they help us financially. So uh, enjoy the film and uh, we'll see you in about an hour and a half. Thank you very much. Sadly, of course, you can't watch The Last Journey with the audience at the Kino because that was in the past. And in any case, this is a podcast for your ears, not for your eyes. Please do come along to future screenings, though. We'd love to have you. As has become traditional on the Kino Quickies podcast, I will now attempt to partially recreate the intense excitement of the screening with this detailed illustrated synopsis. If you're that sort of person who loves the train, especially an old steam train, The Last Journey is the film for you. The first thing that the lucky Kino audience sees on the screen after the trailers for Talking Pictures TV, of course, is a caption which reads, Twickenham Film Studios desire to express their grateful thanks to the Great Western Railway Company for the facilities that they so courteously extended to them in connection to the filming of The Last Journey. So the railway gets a free advert for their lovely trains and Julius Hagen, the Twickenham Studios wheelie dealer supremo, gets to fill some valuable film minutes with some dramatic shots of some very impressive trains. Everyone's a winner. After the title sequence, we're straight into our train porn with steamy shots of trains coupling and decoupling in the station. We now meet Bob the Driver, played by Julian Mitchell, and his fireman Charlie, played by Michael Hogan. Bob seems under the weather, 
and we discover that this is his last ever day on the job. Don't take it so hard, Bob. If you'd been on a job for 40 years... I'd be damn glad to retire. Pension, nice home, pretty wife. Shut up. You'll mind your own business. I don't understand you at all. No, you wouldn't. They haven't finished with me yet. Back at home, we meet Bob's wife, Emily, played by Olga Lindo, who's awaiting his return, pensively clutching a letter from the railway company. As soon as Bob gets back, he tears open the envelope and reads the news he was dreading. The letter reads in part, I am instructed to inform you that the company have given full consideration to your appeal, but regret that all drivers must be retired at the official age limit. Oh, never mind, dear. Sit down and have some breakfast. I don't want food. Oh, I know how you feel, dear. But you'll get used to it in time. You've earned a rest if ever a man has. And this is your home. Oh, I reckon my home's been the footplate of the engine. Yes, I haven't seen much of you these past years, Bob. I was hoping that now, well, perhaps we might see a little more of each other. Eh? Yes. I suppose it has been lonely for you sometimes. <laughs> I'm not complaining. Don't take any notice of me. I'm not myself. I don't know what it is, but my head seems to have been playing tricks with me lately. Bob goes upstairs to sleep ahead of his afternoon shift. His bedroom overlooks the railway sidings. Bob has railways in his blood, and his wife is clearly concerned about his mental state. Downstairs, as Bob fitfully sleeps, Emily begins to write a letter to Charlie. We're then treated to a tour of London as we meet some of the characters who are about to become passengers aboard Bob's last train. First, we head over to the East End where we meet a man called Pip, played by Elliot Maycomb, and his companion Daisy, played by Eve Grey. They're clearly a couple of wrong-uns and are holed up in an upstairs room attempting to evade the law. In the street below, a bobby is knocking on the front door. Is it a cop? Yeah. Oh, I told you you'd make a mess of it. How are we going to get out of here? They cause a distraction by throwing stuff from another window and when the officer goes to investigate, they slip out and escape. We then zoomed over to a registry office in Kensington where Gerald Winter, played by Hugh Williams, and Diana, played by Judy Gunn, are getting hitched suspiciously quickly and with very little ceremony. Over at Diana's very well-appointed home, another dashing young fellow arrives with flowers for Diana. Her maid answers the door. Oh, Mary. Will you be a pal and take it up to Miss Diana for me? Oh, Mr. Tom. Oh, I know, but we'll just say I'm sorry and... Yes, but Miss Diana's gone. She asked me to give you this note. The note reads, Dear Tommy, please forget about our quarrel, forget all about me, or try to remember only the nice things. I've married Gerald Winter. Upon reading this, Tommy, who's played by Mickey Brantford, jumps into his two-seater roadster and zooms off, presumably to try to stop the wedding, but surely it's too late. And then we're off again, this time to a teaching hospital down in Herne Hill, where the famous doctor, Sir Wilfred Rhodes, played by Godfrey Turl, is teaching some students about the wonders of hypnotism as a therapeutic tool. As he explains to his students... In your future medical careers, you'll come across cases where there is nothing pathologically wrong, no brain disease, but where the patient is suffering from an imaginary complaint which can best be treated by mental suggestion. With the advance of anaesthetics, experiment in hypnotism has declined. But it is a fact that in the last century, major operations and amputations were successfully performed while the patient was in the hypnotic state. I have always hoped for the time and the opportunity to carry on the experiments where Esdale of Calcutta and others left off. 
Thank you, that's all. Sir Wilfred has to cut the lecture short. He's realised that he needs to get going if he's to make it to his next appointment. He has a couple of tickets for the Derby, an event to which he's been looking forward to for some time. But, inevitably, the phone rings. It's Dr Hello. Hawkins of Mulchester. Yes, it's a compound fracture of the skull. Only an immediate operation can save her. Can't you possibly get someone local? I'm badly in need of a day's rest and honor. Believe me, Sir Wilfred, there's absolutely no one up here who can take it. It's either you or... When's the next train? There's a train to Manchester at 3.7. If you could catch that, I'll have a car waiting at the station for you. All right, I'll catch the 3.7. And that's our fifth passenger. Back up at Bob's house, he's woken from his tortured sleep by the hooter of a passing train. As he approaches the top of the stairs, he hears voices downstairs. Peering down, he sees his fireman, Charlie, with his arm around Emily. After Charlie's hasty departure, Bob comes down. Had a good sleep? Yes. Tea's all ready. Anybody been here? No. Mm. Oh, I, I thought I'd have mine first. Didn't know you took sugar. Well, I, I really poured it out for you and then drank it myself. I see. Instead of coming and waking me. Suppose I'd been late and spoiled my record on the last lap. I'm sorry, Bob. Well, Emily, yes, to the last journey. A long and honourable career. That's right, honourable. You and me, Emily, we've always lived honourable and we'll die honourable. At the bustling train station, our two felons, Pip and Daisy, have arrived and begin a well-practised routine designed to separate unsuspecting chumps from their wallets. They come across their mark in the form of Mr Goddard, a tipsy, jovial northerner played by Frank Pettingill. He enthusiastically befriends the pretty Daisy, who starts to get him as drunk as possible. Our newly married couple, Gerald and Diana, also arrive at the station, and before boarding their train, Diana needs to send a telegram. I don't know what to say. I can't say, dear mother and father, just married Nan I met in nightclub three weeks ago. Oh, my love, Diana. Oh, come on, it's easy. Just married, charming man, divinely happy, writing, love, Diana. Meanwhile, Bob and Charlie are getting the train for Mulchester ready, and Bob is very out of sorts. What are you going to do when you retire, Bob? Do your job. We'll talk later. With the passengers all aboard and the train beginning to depart, Tommy comes roaring into the station in his two-seater. Parking was obviously a lot easier in those days, because within seconds, he's running along the platform, attempting to see inside the train as it pulls away. Gerald, who we're beginning now to suspect is a bit suspect, sees his rival and intentionally shields him from Diana's view. Foiled in this first attempt to stop the elopees, Tommy races back to his car. The newlyweds settle in for the journey. You're rather a darling, aren't you, Gerald? Oh, come, come, Mrs. Winter. Have you only just realised that? You haven't given me much time to realise anything yet. Except that we're in love. Mm. And safely married. And that isn't bad for one month's work, is it? We've got all the rest of our lives now to find out everything about each other, haven't we? Well, I don't think it's going to take quite as long as that, is it? In this early stage of the journey, we meet our minor characters. A boy travelling by himself who's been seen off by his doting mum. A man who stutters so badly he can't order a cup of tea. This becomes quite a tasteless running gag. A spinsterish temperance campaigner who hands leaflets to her fellow passengers, imploring them to... Read and digest the message contained therein. There's a comedy Frenchman who says we a lot and is trying to go for a wee, but finds the toilet permanently engaged. 
there's a carriage full of screaming children and our doctor, Sir Wilfred Rhodes, finds himself in a carriage with a highly strung hypochondriac when all he wants to do is read his book. I see you believe in keeping up to date. Why, I think that's so essential for a doctor with all these new diseases flying about. You know, I'm so terribly interested in medical matters. Uh, would you mind telling me what the subject is about? A study in the conditional reflexes of fundamental neurasthenics and hypochondriac. Diseases caused by mental suggestion and cured by it. That's hypnotism, isn't it? Well, we have other names for it. Do you mind telling me all about it? I, I'm such a mass of nerves, you know. Perhaps you'd like to read it. Oh, may I? Oh, that's terribly nice of you. It'll have to pass away the time, won't it? Quite. All the while, we make frequent visits back to the engine, where Bob is looking extremely upset, throwing hateful glances at Charlie whilst cradling a gun in his pocket, and to good old Tommy, Diana's ex, who's careering along country roads, attempting to catch up with the train. Back in Gerald and Diana's carriage, Gerald has his nose buried in a newspaper. What's absorbing you? Oh, just the financial news, darling. On our honeymoon? Oh, I'm sorry. Still, I must keep in touch, you know. That's the curse of having... Having a lot of money? Well, of living in a world of high finance. You speculate a lot, don't you? Well, if you can call it speculating. In my position, it's practically a certain... I'm glad we've both got money. Why? And the blood won't fly out of the window? No, I didn't mean that. But it's nice to be independent. Yes, independent and secure. And from now on, I'm going to manage your money so that you'll be even more secure. Are you? Mm-hmm. How? <laughs> We're a nice couple. On our honeymoon and talking about finance. Come on, let's go have some tea. Diana, for the first time, appears to be suspicious of Gerald's motives. Daisy's newfound friend slash victim, Goddard, is getting more and more sloshed and she manages to get him alone in his carriage where she can pick his pocket undisturbed. He begins to slip into a stupor. And back in the dining car, her accomplicing crime, Pip, bumps into an old friend of his. Fancy meeting you. As Diana moves away, our suspicions are confirmed. Gerald, it appears, is of criminally-minded stock. Or at least, this is what we can confer from his obvious familiarity with Pip. Shut up. You've been quite the top, ain't you? Come in, the money. Mind your own business. It's my business. I'm not so lucky as some people. What about a little loan? Fiver? You are a dirty little rat, aren't you? Well, that's a nice way to greet an old pal. Who's your lady friend? Don't talk to me again, or I'll wring your dirty little neck. As the train goes through a tunnel, Daisy swipes the wallet from the unconscious Goddard and heads back to the dining car to meet Pip. The second she leaves, Goddard sits up and straightens his hair, clearly not drunk in the slightest. Another passenger, who is not what they appear to be. He follows her. Back in the dining car, Daisy reconvenes with Pip. They've got it. Okay, we're just running into Philby. We'll hop out there and that'll be that. And this'll be this. Pip has swiped Gerald's wallet. As the train hurtles towards the next station, Philby, Bob finally has it out with a very alarmed Charlie. And we're running into Philby. We're running into somewhere more important than Philby. And you off your head. You and my wife. How much is there in it? Easy down, man, easy down. How much is there in it? Philby! We're running into Philby! Dozens of passengers at Philby Station approach the edge of the platform in anticipation of the train's arrival, and many are blown off their feet as it thunders through. Philby, your signals for anything. Shall I get the truth out of you? You and my wife, how much is there in it? Nothing, man, nothing. Still lying to me, eh? Nothing, stop the train. How will you answer my question? As Charlie tries to slow down the train, Bob pulls his gun. You dirty, treacherous rat! That's all I wanted to know! Don't make it! I don't know what you're doing! 
stop the train! <laughs> Gerald confronts Pip and Daisy in the corridor and pushes them into a carriage. Hello, you two. Watch a little game. Now, listen, me old Don John, Captain Carter, or whatever you call yourself. Do you know what they give you nowadays for bigamy? Shut up. Well, you asked for it. Now, listen, you tell that girl I've got a wife already, I'll wring your dirty little neck. Now, is that clear? Yes. It's a very sober-looking Mr. Goddard. This has been a lucky journey for me. I was just out to catch a couple of cheap crooks, and who should I find on board the train but his lordship, alias Captain Carter, alias Gerald Winter. Suddenly, Gerald knocks Goddard out with a hefty smack to the jaw and rushes off to fetch Diana. The new plan, to get the hell off the train at the next station, Home Church. But they won't be stopping at Home Church. At that very moment, Charlie is being forced to shovel more and more coal into the fire at the point of Bob's gun. As they hurtle through yet another station, the passengers begin to realise that there just may be some sort of situation going on. Gord, what's happening? What are we going to do? What's happened? I don't know. I'll find out. Gerald has a new plan. If he can't escape justice by getting off the train, then the unconscious Goddard must leave instead, and he prepares to throw him to his death. And with a goods train ambling ahead of them on the same track, Charlie knows there are only minutes until the catastrophic impact. He manages to overpower Bob as they go through a tunnel and tries to escape over the top of the carriages, taking at least one bullet through his troubles as the deranged Bob fires wildly at him until his gun jams. You can't get away! Will none of us get away? And there, I'm afraid, we must leave Bob and Charlie, Gerald and Diana, Pip and Daisy, Sir Wilford Rhodes, Gunnard the Inebriate and all the various sundry characters aboard the 307 to Mulchester and return to the Kino for our discussion about the film with our special guest Martin Stollery and the lovely audience. We will return to The Last Journey after the Q&A to find out the fates of our heroes and that will be totally spoiler-tastic so I'll be issuing several stern warnings before we get there. For now though, back at the Kino, the film has finished, the mics are set up, Drinks are in glasses, glasses are in hands, and bombs are on seats. So let's go back to find out what everybody thought about The Last Journey. Right, so uh, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the film. Yay! Good. I feel you enjoyed the film. So, Martin, we talked a little bit about the film from an editing point of view, and you are Mr. Edit. And just, just explain your book a little bit. Oh, a little bit. Okay, it's uh, well. It's, as you mentioned earlier, it's uh, got the very straightforward title of British film editors. It's a kind of discussion of British film editing from from pretty much the coming of sound up to the. Well, it came out in two thousand and four. So, but we were able to include a lot of material about sort of new editing technology, Avid, etc., the shift to digital. But no, we we have a little uh, section in there on quota quickies. So, Excellent. Yes. So who, you were talking about the person who oversees, um, Jack Harris, Yeah. oversaw lots of the films in this season. He did. So um, Jack Harris is someone who's probably going to be the most um, frequent production worker that you'll encounter if you come to some more of these wonderful films, because uh, he was a supervising editor at Twickenham, so he supervised the editing here for I Lived With You, which I would strongly recommend. That's a, a lovely film. Uh, a Fire Has Been Arranged and Scrooge. So four of the six films that are coming up. So he was like the resident editor at Twickenham. He was actually on a contract, a long-term contract, which is un- unusual. Hagen only had a couple of people on long-term contracts. And he went on to do further stuff in Quota Quickie. He worked with George King on some of the Todd Slaughter films. Uh, he teamed up with uh, David Lean, rated him, 
and he edited Lean's films from uh, This Happy Breed to Oliver Twist. And he was chosen by J. Arthur Rank in 1945 to go to America for four months to look into allegations that British films were too slow <laughs> and to do a bit of editing to, to, to spruce them up and speed them up. So and Martin, what, sorry, what does supervising editor mean Zachary as Robinson. opposed to editor? I mean, it depends on the context. You know, he, he would have had the final say. In ter- well, obviously the director has the final say. But one thing I think you learn from Bernard Vorhaus's autobiography is that the director wasn't around at Twickenham. Why would Hagen pay? Oh, sorry, in post-production. Yes, yes, why, why would he pay to keep the director? So the director would obviously talk to the editor, the supervising editor, about what kind of expectations he... I think it was always... there weren't. It's, I'm right in saying he, there weren't any female directors there at Twickenham. No. But the editor, and the supervising editor and the editor would have, would have been left for two weeks on their own to finish off the film because Hagen's not going to pay a director to hang around. And uh, So the director just does the shooting and then goes away. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to have, you know, pre-planned some of the editing and there's some editing tricks that I'll maybe talk about later, which um, would have been, obviously, you know, you need to shoot them before you can edit them together. But uh, there's a nice anecdote in Vorhaus's autobiography and I'll, I'll stop after this. He says his wife, Hetty, wanted to learn about filmmaking. So Vorhaus said to Jack Harris, oh, can you take her on as an assistant? And... He did, and, he, and after a while he said, oh, she's doing so well, can I keep her permanently? But Hetty and uh, Bernard thought, no, we, uh, we don't want to do that because um, then we won't be able to go on holiday after the shoot, which tells you... Um, that uh, yes, that she would be the one taking up the work after he'd finished yeah, 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 the work. Yeah. Yeah. But also the, the director's not around, the director takes not a holiday around. after the yeah, shoot. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, so would the, would the supervising editor, as opposed to an editor-editor, would they establish like a, a style, a general style or something? Yeah, I think there's a few um, trademark things in here. So Harris was not a kind of intellectual editor like Thorold Dickinson, who also worked on Quota Quickies. He was someone who just grafted his way up from the age of 16 in the industry and only started editing um, after the coming of sound. So like David Lean, he was very much a, a practical industry editor, a good dialogue editor, and I think one little trademark is, do you remember the towards the end when the passengers are getting really anxious, you get that lovely expertly timed series of close-ups of anxious faces? Um, if you come and see I Lived With You, there's a tea party hosted by Ivan Novello uh, with a bunch of lovely old ladies uh, drinking vodka when they think it's tea, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll see the same little editing trick in there. So there's a few sort of touches. I'm not saying, you know, he's an auteur or whatever, but you can see stylistic trademarks. Yeah, he's not an auteur. Bernard Vorhaus wasn't necessarily an auteur. Yeah. Julius Hagen wasn't an auteur. But no. they, I think they all... This is what I was saying at, at the beginning. You do feel like they all wanted to put something decent on film, mm. you know. Mm. This, I think there's something I want to talk to Lawrence about. This seems to be something that kind of did for Julius Hagen in the end, having aspirations for something higher. Yeah. When he could, have, he could have just taken the money and done quota quickies... Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You know, it's like this... I don't know if you noticed, but it's distributed by Twickenham film studios rather than by RKO who distributed some of the films that we saw in the last season and a lot of the films we saw last season were sort of 33 a lot of the films we're seeing this season are 35 and you can see the difference so like he's ambitious for these films they're longer this was an, this was 90 minutes I think wasn't it uh, I think it's a one hour ten actually so um, it's a I bit, live with you is 90 it's minutes a bit longer than a bit longer than an hour so it's like 
you know, an hour is the cutoff if you want to you want to hit the legislation. Anything beyond that is money you are spending. But also, I think he is keen to like for this second tranche of films really to sort of like to be a calling card for the idea that he might be able to make you know significant films rather than just quota quickies i think it's scrooge that he 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 really sort of like makes a big deal in the publicity about how he's he's booked it into canada and he's booked it to india and he's you know he's booked it globally as a sort of global film which is like a quota quickie does not get booked globally. like the whole point of it is that it's just for the british market because britain has this legislation so he's clearly keen to start making proper films but actually uh, you know, it doesn't. It's not successful. He he also goes bankrupt in this year because he's spent so much money on these films and they don't actually get the return that he was hoping for. So he would have spent a lot of money on making this film because he because he, he would some... make yes. <clears throat> I mean, a lot of money for Julius Hager. Yeah. <laughs> because the deal there's a deal with Great Western Railways, wasn't there? Which is kind of reciprocal. We make your trains look good and. You know, yes. I film my footage with trains, <laughs> and also I was reading somewhere in the clippings you sent me. He he also did a deal with that random uh, plane hire company. <laughs> <laughs> well, presumably because he needed the plane for free, so he yeah. was like, "I Where can advertise your plane, weird plane company." How did he? A little Tommy in his car, he, he can park at Paddington Station like that, which is impossible to do now. And he parks a plane equally as easily at Mulchester. Well, I, I was going to say, um, you know, forget about planes, trains and automobiles. This one has a ship thrown in at the end for good measure. Yeah. You get a lot. And the three, the three films in the season that are the kind of this triumvirate of films that brought him down, aren't they? This, Scrooge and A Fire's Been Arranged. Yeah. And um, they all do seem to... They look quite plush, all of them, don't they? And, yeah. Um, yeah. and a, a, a fire's been arranged, has got at least two big dancing numbers with 30-odd yeah. dancers or yeah, something. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, those musical stars are not... You know, they are stars by this point, so they're not, they're not nobodies. I think it's quite, it's quite interesting. But, I mean, the thing that finally pushes him over the edge, of course, is... Betty Balfour, everybody's favourite who's interested in British film, Betty Balfour. She um he she appears in a film she appears in a film of his which is a which is a remake of Squibs, which had been her big sort of silent series of successes. And this is a sound remake. And in, I mean I'm obsessed with Squibs and the idea of I don't know if you noticed like there was a lot of stuff here about the 30 mile an hour limit, speed limit, when the guy is like on the on the in the car speeding around um, and that was introduced in this year 1935 and Squibbs makes a lot of like the introduction of road traffic laws in 1935 anyway that's all by the by because what happens is Betty Balfour basically isn't paid for her role in Squibbs or rather you know she asks for the money and he's like oh, well you know later on you know just having a few cash flow problems you know sorry and everything <laughs> and she takes him to court and sues him and that's what tips him into bankruptcy and I should at the risk of sounding like a monomaniac I should add that Squibbs was also edited by Jack Harris <laughs> and there's some wonderful kind of Busby Barkley like uh, dance mm. montages in it yeah some lovely numbers in Squibbs it's very sad you do feel that I read a lot of things about people really liking Julius Hagen and they called him Uncle Julius and all that kind of stuff and I read another anecdote about Scrooge which is that some American distributors said oh yeah yeah send us 150 copies we'll put it all over America so he printed all these copies off of Scrooge at great expense, went into you know, overdraft to do it and everything. And then they said, ah, actually, you don't want them. So it was an, in an intentional ploy to bring him down. And that, I mean, I think that's a kind of classic 
scenario. I mean, number one, it, it's an indication of what tight margins he was working with. You know, it's like just a few extra prints of a film. I mean, obviously, prints cost money, but most film distributors would be able to weather that storm. But it's also a kind of classic way in which Hollywood studios behave towards Britain and like the whole crisis of British production or, or of, of, of you know the whole kind of thing that ushered in the quota really was a similar kind of behavior from Paramount w with Stoll the distributor um, in 1919 where Stoll which is a British company hired lot you know like paid lots of money for to have uh, big films from Paramount and Paramount just suddenly turned around and said oh actually I think we're going to distribute these ourselves so bye and Oswald Stoll was so outraged that he was like, actually, you know what? Screw you. We're going to open a studio in Cricklewood and make our own films. Yeah, in Cricklewood. It's not the same, quite the same as <laughs> Hollywood. <laughs> I've been it to has its own glamour. <laughs> um, so, Martin, you were... So, first of all, Lawrence mentioned this thing that you were talking about, the Cinematrics website. I had a quick look at it. Didn't understand it at all. Could you explain what it is and what you did with it? Okay, um, so for Editing Geeks, it's the, you know, fabulous website. Pretty straightforward, actually. Um, it's been set up by some academics, I think, University of Chicago. So uh, what you do is you put the film on, on your laptop, on your computer, you open the software, and now this is the really geeky bit. You have to press the mouse every time there's a cut, okay? So, and I did this for The Last Journey. Okay. Uh, once you've uploaded it, it goes to a shared database so that you do, no one in the world has to do the same thing twice. And what it, it will give so you... So you opened it up thinking, maybe somebody's done this for the last year I and did, I won't I have did. to do that. But no, no you'd like... I sat there for an hour and did it, yes. But, but, you know, it gives you some interesting results. So it, it will generate a nice graph which shows you the, the length of every shot. In other words, the amount of time every shot is held on screen. And it will also give you the average shot length. And fortunately, there were some other British train films already on the database. And so here's one I prepared earlier. I have got the average shot lengths for some comparative films. Would you like to hear Yes. Yeah. 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 Right, here we go. So, The Flying Scotsman, 1929. I think one of Lawrence's favourites. Castleton Knight. A similar narrative as well. There's a, a train driver is sacked for drunkenness climbs back on the train and tries to crash it. That one, 6.4 seconds average shot length. Then we mentioned briefly earlier Rome Express, which I think is another precursor to this film, 1932, fairly big budget, Gaumont British film, 10.2 average shot length. So quite a lot more sedate. And uh, of course, the Hitchcock, The Lady Vanishes, 7.5 seconds. That surprised me, I thought it'd be longer actually. Yeah, um, uh, there's some brisk editing in there, but in first place, The Last Journey. 5.2 seconds average shot length. There you go. So, But now, does that mean, I mean, like, the way that you're <laughs> describing that suggests that the shorter the shot length, no, the no. better the movie? No, not at all, no, not at all. But, but I think if you're doing a movie about a runaway train, then probably brisk editing. And I think uh, we had some conversation before everyone came in about the absurd plot holes. Um, now, if you just cut like crazy through this, you're not really going to be detained by them, are you? You know, where did the gun come from? Uh, why didn't you just hit him with the shovel? You know, you just because you're just <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that, you're that, just yeah. propelled through the film, aren't you, by the editing? I think it is interesting that list of train films you've just given us because this is clearly in a pretty established genre of of films. Um, and I watched Rome Express 
yesterday just sort of thinking oh, I better gen up on train films and like because Rome Express is you know it's the first film that's produced by it's the first film that's produced at the Shepherd's Bush studios that Gaumont British have just sort of established so it's like a big big prestige expensive picture it's directed by a guy called Walter Ford who's not averse to this kind of production his silent stuff is is very much a kind of runaway train kind, kind of things and the thing that's really noticeable about the last uh, about Rome Express in those early sequences is how mobile the camera is. So they've built sets for the stations, and the camera moves around them, you know, and picks up the the characters who are about to appear on the train, and then moves along with a you know with a with a with a luggage you know trolley or something, and into the next character. Whereas this is all in the edit it's all it's all still there's no moving camera really it's all there's a small amount but it's all cut it's all cut to create the excitement and and i think that's another thing you see which is you know you see the movement you have all these intertwining stories or parallel stories but it's connected together by the movement in one as one scene ends the movement is picked up by the so it's it's fluid it's very very uh, dynamic editing i think Uh, also in that your your press cuttings um, folder Lawrence was as happens every every film this these stories about local cinema managers doing these ridiculous stunts to I remember on Phantom Light which is set on a lighthouse somebody had built a paper mache lighthouse and there was <laughs> seagulls on strings and that sort of thing <laughs> Do you, do you want to talk about some of the ones for this one? Because uh, I think Paul's let us down here at the keynote. There should be half a train in the bar. <laughs> I can't remember what there was. Can you remember? Yeah, there was, I mean, basically that. There was a kind of, um, there was I mean, a 24-sheet poster on the wall of a sort of a background and then a, a train sticking out the wall and some carriages and people. And then another one, um, somebody went round town dressed as a ticket inspector, handing tickets out to people in the street. <laughs> Which is, uh, I mean, it's it's inventive, if nothing else, you know. Have you got anything from the audience? Anybody wants to jump in with anything? Any questions? Oh. I was wondering, Rome Express, they've been showing on our beloved Talking Pictures Sleeping Car to Trieste recently, another train film. I had an idea that Rome Express was the precursor of that one, that the Sleeping Car to Trieste was based on it. I, I could be wrong. Yes, I I think that might. Be. I haven't seen Sleeping Car to Trieste, so I can't say for certain. But yeah, I Gene think Kent in it. Is it that? Yeah, it's it Gene Kent in Sleeping Car to Trieste. Yeah, yes, it yes. was certainly remade. I think Rome Express a couple yes, of times. I mean, it's difficult to say what. It's just a genre, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean there's always there's always. <laughs> There's always somebody loony on the train. Yeah. There's always some. There's always a couple of other criminals who are like, you know, there for a bit of local colour. There's always a honeymooning couple or a couple who are having an affair. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like they are. They do run on a rail. These films. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered how. I do wonder how um, Inspector Goddard managed to sit there and drink whiskey after whiskey after whiskey, <laughs> and then just go. I'm actually 100 percent sober. <laughs> That's if only we knew that trick. Yeah. You don't think about it while you're watching it, do you, because of the editing. So, yeah. Um, oh, there's so many of these films, especially in British cinema in the 30s. You've got The Wrecker, The Ghost Train, two versions of The Ghost Train. There's your next... Um, no, true. And, uh, I mean, Ghost Train has exactly that figure of the temperance lady yes, who yeah. like, is given a bit of booze to revive and wants a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to talk about, Martin? Yeah, um... 
Well, I'll, if you'll allow me one more, one more moment, one more instance of editing geekiness, I will throw this onto the audience. Did you notice any um, interesting, unusual camera positions and editing in the struggle in the cab? I did notice where they had sort of the, the vantage point for much of it, where it was sort of like either over the shoulder of I, Charlie, I think, the guy who should have used the shovel but yeah, didn't. Yeah. Um, and then at one point, they're like up in the coal bin, it looks like, of the the engine, sort of shooting down into the cab, which was, I did notice, because and they kind of, the way they were sort of shifting back and forth was pretty interesting. Yeah. I kept thinking somebody was going to get shoved into the flames because of that, which was obviously a bit too violent for this film because in the end all was well, but it was an interesting way. Yeah, there was yeah. that shot from inside the firebox. Yeah, that that's was what really I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. 100% I thought the same thing. I was so, like, who's going to shove him in? But then he just sort of cried a little bit. And, so, so, so what they did there, I mean, again, kind of standard rule of continuity editing, don't go across the 180 degree line. You got, so the three of us are on the line. You know, or you, if you're filming this, you take the camera positions and the shots are cut from positions over here. Don't do it from here, because otherwise we'll switch position on the screen. And that, um, the, the shot from inside the coal cab was cut to a shot directly opposite, so right on the 180 yeah. degree line. So you kind of saw them switch position, and that's, that's fine. You know, in a fight scene, it works. You don't really get disorientated by it, but it just livens things up a bit. So there are lots of tricks, I think, if you... Uh, if you are so inclined to, to pick them out from the film. I mean, the shots where people were falling out of the doors as well were really, I thought, well done. Like the one where the, I guess the, I think it was the police officer. I don't, it's hard to keep track of who was shoving who out of the train, but where the door kind of swung out and the camera was like looking through the window of the door as they were like trying to, yeah, literally this shot, like as they were trying to sort of strangle one another and or throw one another off the train was quite dynamic. I thought it was really interesting. And I think, I think one of the things Vorhaus said in his autobiography is that he, because he was a scriptwriter to begin with, and he liked to specify camera positions in his script. He was very keen on that. So, uh, yeah. He also said he knew, he, he knew exactly how to edit, but I don't see any evidence of that. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll give that one to Jack. <laughs> and uh, Bernard Vorhaus ended his days as um, a property developer in Middlesex. No offence to property developers in Middlesex, but it seems like a bit of a come down because he obviously had quite a, quite a talent for it. What did um, David Lean say? Can you use my David Lean quote? He was as clever as a wagon load of monkeys. <laughs> from David Lean. <laughs> is that good or bad? Sorry? Is that good or bad? Well, I think that's... I think he means good, but uh, I don't quite see how... <laughs> give I a suppose. wagon load of monkeys an editing block. Yeah. Don't give any razor blades. Um, what worried me and slightly took the edge off the film for me was the histrionics of, of the train driver. Why was he so totally over the top? <laughs> you know, he knew no restraint. He seemed to lose it completely. You know, I just don't know why he was allowed to sort of... Um, Drive a train. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, lots of things were understated in the rest of the film, and, and beautifully done, you know, beautifully made. But he, he was, like, completely out of it. You know. I suppose there's a, there's a sort of problem, isn't there, when you're, when you're creating a narrative like mm. this, that you're like, 
what you need is those people to be stuck on that train yeah. and to be thinking that they're going to like be careering yeah. to their deaths. How you get to that point is a whole different story. <laughs> and so you do need the kind of the insane train driver, but they don't necessarily fit together. It's like if everybody was being that histrionic, it would it would seem less jarring, but because you've got one histrionic train driver and a whole load of like crims of various various types on the train who are not quite at that level sort of feels a bit weird. Was it just his performance that was... It was his melodramatic. Yeah, I don't think he's the greatest actor. And and he seemed to be, like, he seemed to be out of all proportion to what had been going on, you know. They think he's got some sort of brain disorder. It's not just overwhelming jealousy. There's something... Yeah, and only by looking at railway tracks, which he's never done before, <laughs> uh, will he. Uh, Presumably, he's trying to hypnotise him. Isn't yeah, I think that's I mean, hypnotism. Like, like, great surely he's looked at trucks going on here. But actually, uh, I thought Doctor um, Wilford Rhodes' final prognosis, which is just, it'd be all right after he's had a lie down, <laughs> was uh, not the best. Really, <laughs> I've also read that you know people. Um, for example, Colin Wilson, he talks about going to, into a hypnotic state by looking at the milepost markers. So there's some background to this. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, no, it was just more because while we're, we're on that subject, what I thought I wanted to ask, particularly, oh, I almost fell over. Because um, <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any equivalent of like what I understand of like the Hayes Code with this ending here. I mean, I'm going to go on a whim and attribute that the fact that he has a gun and he can jump off on these things and you could have a story of some shell-shocked experiences of fighting in World War One because they're talking about his age and so on. But the two crooks who get away, they've shown some redemptive quality by not killing the copper. The one unredeemable, you know, scoundrel or whatever you want to call it, is locked up. But the, the idea that this man can then just... Have a rest and his wife will understand they're still the master. And the reason why I'm asking this, and particularly because as a, as a, as a quote, is there no sense of, not, not censorship is the wrong word, but was there any criteria for trying to sell a, a moral code? So, so you compare it to the, so the, so the yeah. Hayes Code, people don't know the Hayes Code came in about 1933-ish, 34, in America, um, and it laid down a lot of, sort of rules about the kind of things that you could doing films and I mean that's famously why you could never show a double bed in a bedroom it always had to be single beds and that sort of thing and also characters if they did a bad thing they had to be seen to have um, to be punished but that doesn't like I say it doesn't happen in this at all although I think Pip and Daisy the two pickpockets they do earn their release. That, that, I know. think it's because that happens is why it suddenly put everything else into relief because there is this almost there is an almost redemptive redemptive Fagan and you know uh, Oliver kind of quality to them. They are very comical, but they do go. We're not going to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. But um, also, the film makes a lot of business out of like you don't need that scene with the with the copper saying, "Oh, I think I might just like turn my eyes and not notice <laughs> yeah. when you escaped." Like you really like I, the editing so good, you wouldn't really notice <laughs> if they you know if nobody told you what happened to them. So it's sort of. I think you're right. It's quite weird the way it like totally redeems everybody. I think. I think. I think for Bob. I mean, he's the film posits him as a, you know, a medical case really, and and there's so much deference towards the authority of the doctor, Godfrey Tell. Um, Godfrey. But I think if you wanted to develop a queer reading of this film, 
it would all start from the Godfrey's lecture when the um, uh, <laughs> yeah. he hypnotizes the dude the goes yeah. to the wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, Lawrence, you had a thing about Godfrey Tilden, not a thing about him in that way, but you had a. <laughs> Just to, just to describe this, Lawrence nearly fell over a microphone stand. Yes, I love Godfrey. Um, I love Godfrey partly because he was a massive, well, he was a big star in the Edwardian period of theatre. And I've, you know, I've read a lot about Edwardian theatre and I've got this hilarious anecdote which I read where he was in the St. James's Theatre Company as the sort of, you know, the the juvenile heartthrob, I guess, of that company. And uh, the St. James's Theatre famously, you know, it, 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 on stage people were playing the absolute most fashionable young people of the city. So where's that? Is that the Whitehall Theatre now? It doesn't exist anymore. Oh. It's been demolished, but okay. it was in St. James's. And the management of the St. James's Theatre thought, you know, like, if you're playing the elite of our society, you have to basically behave like the elite of our society. So Godfrey, Paul Godfrey... He got a letter from the theatre management one morning which basically said, you were seen in Piccadilly in the morning in a lounge suit. <laughs> this is inappropriate dress for a member of the repertory company of the St. James's Theatre. You should have been in a morning suit with a top hat. And should you wish to dress like this again, I will assume that it is an indication that you don't wish to be employed by this theatre. <laughs> Times have changed. <laughs> I think we should probably end it there. Do we anything we need to plug while we... Because we want to do a little plug session. The next. The next one is The Impassive Footman. It's actually... This is the one film of the season of six that isn't a renowned film. And it isn't a Julius Hagen Twickenham film. It's an early Ealing film. And it's um, it's very good. I, re I really like it. And our guest is Mel Byron, who uh, some of you will know. Um, she's from Talking Pictures TV podcast. So that doesn't clash with any football. So um, come and see us again in two weeks' time. Well, that was fun. Remember, you too can come along to the keynote to watch a cracking quota quickie and join in the post-show chat. The place to find tickets is ticketsource.co.uk forward slash quickies and you'll also find a link to that in the show notes at quickies.com. As mentioned, the next film is 1932's The Impassive Footman on October the 23rd and the special guest is comedian and co-host of the Talking Pictures TV podcast, Mel Byron. All tickets for all films are a very reasonable £10. Thank you, Martin Stollery, for coming on the show and for sharing your geeky wisdom. And thanks also to the audience and staff at the Kino and to Robin the Soundman for twiddling knobs with such panache. And now, back to the breathless climax of The Last Journey. Remember, this will take us all the way to the end of the film and will reveal who lives, who dies, who evades justice and who has their criminal collar felt. If you don't want to find this out, please press stop now. I'll say goodbye and we'll see you next time. But now... Multiple spoilers ahead on the tracks. You have been warned. So, when we left the 307 to Mulchester, things were getting pretty hectic, what with one thing and another. Let's just do a quick recap of what all our characters are up to. As the injured Charlie lies on the roof of the speeding train, Bob is manically shoveling coal into the firebox. Gunnard is passed out and about to be thrown off the train by the malevolent Gerald Winter and his criminal companions. Our eminent doctor, Wilfred Rhodes, is quietly reading his book in happy solitude, 
unaware of the shocking developments taking place all around him. And zooming alongside the train at 80 miles per hour is dashing young Tommy, who is still chasing his beloved Diana in the hope of wresting her heart back from his dastardly love rival. Charlie manages to clamber to his feet and tumbles inside a carriage where passengers are, understandably, perturbed to see him. Is there a doctor on the train? Is there a doctor on the train? If only there was a doctor on the train. I'm a doctor, what's the matter? Gerald uses the distraction to start to put his plan of disposing Goddard into action, but Daisy is not going to be an accomplice to murder. No, I won't. You can't do that! As Gerald attempts to dump the heavy and inert Goddard out of the door, Daisy tries to stop him, and a terrible struggle ensues with each of the characters coming perilously close to falling to their deaths. With the arrival of Diana in the carriage, Gerald abandons his evil plan and leaves Goddard with Daisy. Now fully appraised of the situation at the front of the train and the state of Bob's mental health, Sir Wilfred decides that if ever there was a moment for his powers of hypnotism to be used, this is that moment and that he must get to Bob. He opens a door and begins to inch his way along the outside of the train. Word has finally got to the slow-moving goods train that they are in danger and they begin to speed up in a bid to escape. At the last possible second, with some heroic split-second timing, the signalman manages to switch the points and the runaway train is diverted, avoiding the goods train, but they are still going to be smashed to smithereens at the end of the line. Our last hope is Wilfred Rhodes, who has nearly reached the engine. And what of Tommy in his speeding two-seater? He somehow managed to persuade a pilot to take him up in a biplane and is following the train from the air. He really is a determined fellow. Back in the train, Sir Wilfred has reached Bob and hits him with a huge barrage of reassuring bedside manner. Oh, oh, oh. Me. No one can stop I'm me. not trying to stop No one here. I've come to help. By cleverly tricking Bob to look down at the tracks, Sir Wilfred manages to hypnotise Bob and explains to him why Charlie was with Emily. Bob is suddenly distraught at the thought of what he could have done and hauls down on the regulator. To Sir Wilfred's great relief and that of all the passengers, the train begins to slow down. She's slowing up! She's slowing up! They're stopping! Well, I suppose Manchester Police Station will be as comfortable as own church. Reminds me of a case where a tech was taking in a couple of groups, just as it might be us. Oh, really? Yes. And just as the train was drawing into the station, the tech turned his head away. Only for a second, mind you. And what do you think happened? Ricked his neck. No. Those two groups opened the door and beat it. Right under his very nose. So, in gratitude for saving his life, Goddard has turned a blind eye while Daisy and Pip make good their escape from the decelerating train. That still leaves Gerald, though, bigamist, fraudster, attempted murderer and who knows what other crimes. A pair of handcuffs are slapped on his wrists as he attempts to give up his ticket and then good old Tommy, who must have managed to park his plane somewhere close, arrives. He seems very sanguine about the fact that his girlfriend had just run off with another man because... You're not really married to him. Why, he has a wife already. 
That's true enough, miss. More than one, in fact. Hey, hey, you can't get away. It's all right, it's all right. And a cheerful, whistling Gerald is escorted away by Goddard. And poor old Bob the driver. What's to become of him? After safely stewarding the train into Mulchester Station, he collapses, but Sir Wilfrid assures all concerned that he'll be okay after a good rest, and as the closing titles begin, he and Emily are happily reunited. That engine's a faithless old hussy. Doesn't care who's a master. Not like you. Hey, cut it.